88.3. KFCF in Fresno at 88.1 and online at kpfa.org. It's 3 o'clock. Happy ending, nice and tidy. It's a rule I learned in school. Get your money every Friday. Happy endings are the rule. So divide up those in darkness from the ones who walk in light. Light them up, boys. There's your picture. Drop the shadow. This is Jennifer Stone with Stone's Throw. Today is July the 7th, yes, 2015. Glorious summer. For me, it's time to look on the dark side. For most people, it's winter that does it, you know. Uh, Winter depressions for me. It's that old summer solstice, uh, June the 21st, and I start going downhill. Of course, I should try to ignore it, you know, the dark moods. Uh, somebody told me they'd quit in my, my 40s, okay? That's <laughs> half a century ago. Anyway, I remember the advice of my friends uh, cautioning me. Yes, how to lose friends and alienate People, they said to me, yes, (laughs) so easy, easy to alienate, just tell the truth. Anyway, uh, sometimes I do need to go where so many poets go. Uh, You know, those special poets who are willing to go down into the dark, that is, to hell, and return, bring us back some valuable information, tell us tales. These are the prophets. Sometimes it kills them. Uh, <laughs> that's why I'm doing Sylvia Plath today, kind of a Cassandra at times she was. Uh, but actually, we did believe her. Cassandra is the prophet that nobody believed. Sylvia got through to me. Anyway, sometimes it's the life of these poets, the lives they live, their biographies that teach us about the dark. Uh, I like to go dust the graves every few years. Yes, someone said that only the dead tell the truth and then not for some years. Sylvia Plath died in 1963. She was 30. (laughs) She and uh, Emily Bronte, yes. Actually, both Sylvia Plath and Anne Sexton are my touchstones. Uh, Plath is exactly my age. Wait, no, she's... Uh, a year older than I am, a year and a couple months older. Mm-hmm. 
But uh, the 1950s, now that was a time. What a time it was. We used to say that uh, the, the 50s were fatuous, you know. Uh, that means they were sort of, you know, dull and, uh, what was it, poodle skirts and uh, went to a party once and they were all wearing... Uh, 1950s, they thought was all poodle skirts. They were wearing those funky saddle shoes. That's it. That's it. Uh, <laughs> I'm afraid that uh, none of it uh, was what it seemed even when it was happening. Check out the movie, Sylvia. I caught it the other day. That's what got me back. Uh, it's amazing, you know. Movies are useful, folks. Uh if nothing else, they, they send you back to the book. Uh, the movie is titled, Sylvia, Gwyneth Paltrow uh, plays the poet. Uh, Michael Gabon is in it at the end. He's the guy downstairs. She goes downstairs and asks him for some stamps, you know. That's the night uh, that she decides to put her head in the oven. And... Uh, uh, I remember hearing in an interview with Gwyneth Paltrow that her own father had just died. She said that she was uh, going through a mourning period. Uh, Sylvia Plath's father died when she was eight years old. Um, now, Otto Plath was old enough to be her grandfather. Both her parents were German, if you think that's useful. She certainly was what I would call a disciplinarian. She's a blooming Calvinist, if you ask me. Anyway, I want to start today with something that I thought was kind of funny. <laughs> I found it in her journals. <laughs> mm-hmm. The literary life, yes, yes. Oh, no, that's a poem by Ted. I'm going to read that next because it, too, is about Marion Moore. Now, here is Sylvia Plath talking about a very famous poet that she obviously was in awe of. Uh, she's young here. She's still trying to impress, I guess. She says that actually she was always just trying to impress her mother. Uh, and, of course, her dead father. Uh, here's what Sylvia says. She says, Marion Moore sent a queerly ambiguous, spiteful letter in answer to my poems and my request that she be a reference for my Saxton. That's an award she hoped to get her a fellowship. She always seemed to be surviving on grants and fellowships. Sylvia goes on to to write in her journal. So spiteful, it is hard to believe it. Comments of absolutely no clear meaning, no help. They resonant only with great unpleasantness, as in, here she quotes Marion Moore, don't be so grisly. Then uh, another quote. She says that I only brush away the flies. This was for my graveyard poem, says Sylvia. <laughs> I'm 
brush away the flies so you can see the cadaver, right? Anyway, oh, I love these. I love these women. Anyway, uh, for my poem, Muscle Hunter, here's a quote. Uh, Marion Moore writes to Sylvia. She says, uh, you are too unrelenting. And then certain pointed remarks about uh, typing being a bugbear. So she sends back the poems we sent. I cannot believe she got so tart and acidy simply because I sent her carbon copies. Clear, she remarks. I have no idea what that means, obviously. (laughs) Sylvia Plath is as much in the dark as I am. Anyway. She writes, this, I realize, must be my great and stupid error, sending carbons to the American lady of letters. Perhaps I thus queered my chance of a Saxton. I don't know why I found this so funny, except it's the kind of schoolgirl thing that reminds me of (laughs) my own messy life. Uh, Apparently, uh, the carbon copies were some kind of serious insult. I have no idea why. Many of you won't even know what a carbon copy is. You put the carbon between the two pages and you got an extra copy. You know, it's very convenient. But uh, there was a rule uh, in my day never to send a carbon, you know, to a magazine, to an editor, you know, publisher, because, I don't know why, because... Um, Sometimes they even asked for carbon, saying that way they wouldn't worry about losing them because you had the original. Anyway, uh, I suppose it, it's, what is it? It's a question of status. You know, the notion that you're only worth getting a carbon uh, copy. I, I don't get it anyway. I wanted to read you that before I read you a poem uh, that was written by Sylvia Plath's husband. <laughs> It's called The Literary Life. And uh, I won't interrupt. I won't interrupt this poem. I don't think there's anything here that's too obscure. I think you will get it. Uh, Ted Hughes writes, uh, this is long, long after, long after the death of his dear wife. Anyway. We climbed Marion Moore's narrow stair to her bower bird bric-a-brac nest in Brooklyn, daintiest curio relic of Americana. Her talk, a needle, unresting, darning incessantly, chain mail with Cruel work, flowers, birds, and fish of a reef in phosphor bronze wire. Her face, tiny American, trine bobbin on a spindle. Her voice, the flickering hum of the old wheel. Then the coin compulsory for the subway back to our quotidian scramble. Why shouldn't we cherish her? You sent her carbon copies of some of your poems. 
everything about them, the ghost gloom, the constriction, the bell jar air conditioning, made her gasp. Gasp for oxygen and cheer. She sent them back. Ah, parenthesis. Whoever has her letter has her exact words. End parenthesis. Ah, quote. Since these seem to be valuable carbon copies, parenthesis, somewhat smudged, end parenthesis, I shall not engross them, end quote. I took the point of that engross precisely like a bristle of glass snapped off deep in my thumb. You wept, hurled yourself down a floor or Further from the Emphirion, I carried you back up, and she, Marion, tight, brisk, neat, and hard as an ant, slid into the second or third circle of my inferno a decade later. On her last visit to England, holding court at a party, she was sitting bowed over her knees, her face under her great hat-brim's floppy petal, dainty and bright as a piece of confetti. She wanted me to know, she insisted. Uh, it was all she wanted to say. With that uh, Missouri needle drawing each stitch tight in my ear, that your little near posthumous memoir, Ocean One Two One Two, was oh so wonderful, so lit, so wonderful. She bowed so low, I had to kneel. I kneeled and bowed my face close to her upturned face that seemed tinier than ever, studied as through a grill. Her lips that put me in mind of a child's purse. Made of the skin of a dormouse. Her cheek as if she had powdered the crumpled silk of a bat's wing. <laughs> I listened, heavy as a graveyard, while she searched for the grave where she could lay down her little wreath. <laughs> Obviously... Ted Hughes was not impressed with Marion Moore's effort to say something nice about the death of his wife, Sylvia Plath. Yes, uh, I don't know. I I don't know whether I like Ted Hughes' poems. You know, he, he died the poet laureate of England, and there hadn't been one since Alfred Lord Tennyson. And so I, I guess he was considered to be one of England's great Poets are uh, hard to understand all these things. Uh, the truth is, uh, when I dig, dig, dig in the journals and the poems, I find that Sylvia Plath uh, was in a rage from day one. Uh, that's the only thing that I can say. She... Uh, so many people said that uh, it wasn't Ted's fault and that uh, <laughs> she drove him away and all that stuff, you know. Uh, I was looking here for the little section 
that describes her, not her uh, rage so much as her confusion. Uh, I'm surprised she didn't break his neck. Uh, mm -hmm. We are intact, she says. We are intact. They actually got through the day after they had this terrible fight. Let's see, where's the fight? I think I know where it is. Here it is. Ah, uh, yes. Secret sin, secret sin. I envy, covet, lust, wander, lost, red-heeled, red-gloved, black, flowing-coated, catching my image in shop windows. A stranger, I am a stranger. Oh, I think, I think her anger here is not, it's not, uh, well, the kind of rage I wanted to talk about really is her, her rage, not just at the people in England and their incredible put downs, but, uh, let's be honest, her rage at Ted's patriarchal principles. Gertrude Stein once wrote, Patriarchal poetry makes no mistake. Uh -huh. uh, she took Ted's advice, but she was very, very angry. Uh, I think of Silvio as nature and uh, Ted Hughes as reason. Let's call it the uh, brain hemispheres. <laughs> you know, she, she's in the right hemisphere and he's in the left. I always think there's a little man between the two hemispheres in our heads and uh, <laughs> and uh, the little fella in there keeps yelling at me saying liar, liar. Uh, oh, here's Sylvia again. She says, I'm trying to keep the filth of life at a distance. Washing hair, self-stockings, blouses. She's trying to write a letter to Ted's sister. And then she says, Am I free to write to her? My identity is shaping, forming itself. Oh, I read the collection of the New Yorker stories, and in the fullness of time I shall be among them. Among them. She she never stops talking about wanting to be uh, in the New Yorker. Uh, I think there was one summer, the summer she cracked up, she went and I think it was Mademoiselle Magazine gave her an internship. She was there. Editor, she says the book was a comedy. That's the bell jar. Uh, if not a uh, comedy, she says, then at least it's a, uh, a satire. Uh, Here she is talking about her chain of fear logic. Uh, mostly, it always boils down to her mother. I can't figure out whether she's angrier with her mother for not being what she thinks a woman should be or whether she's angriest at Ted for not being a woman or for not being her. Yes, why? 
aren't you me? <laughs> That's what it's always about. Yes. Uh, she's very angry at one point about his book on witches. There's some evidence that Ted Hughes was a uh, practitioner of the ancient Celtic art. Uh, uh, I think of his mother. Uh, she died suddenly. Ted had left uh, Sylvia and married Olga, and Olga had a little child, two years old. Uh, I believe it was, yes, their child. And Olga, too, decided to leave this world. She committed suicide and took the two-year-old with her. At this point, Ted's mother, ah, who knows why, simply died. She'd had a small operation on her ankle or something, but uh, no one believed that that was the reason. Uh, who knows what she knew or felt or thought. Uh, I wanted to read you, oh, maybe not. There's a passage here where Sylvia Plath is at the uh, the magazine, you remember, where she was working on uh, being an editor. And uh, she comes across a, a woman there. Uh, she describes her in great detail, her horrible behavior. Uh, she's a, a vulgarian, and the girl is so delighted that there's going to be an execution. That's the Rosenbergs. Yeah. Ethel Rosenberg, I, I think of Meryl Streep's recent performance in Angels in America. She did a wonderful Ethel, and uh, she said, <laughs> she said uh, such ridiculous things. I think, uh, I think the thing is, when she tries, when she tries to be compassionate, that is Sylvia, she can't quite manage it. She, of course, thinks that all of these horrors uh, are from hell, but she doesn't care to make them any better. At one point, yes, one of the poems says, I simply cannot see where there is to get to. Yes, cannot see where there is to get to. Uh, she... <laughs> She, what is it she said? Yes, there's always a bloody baby in the air. Uh, I think what I'll do before I mess up completely and run out of time, I have too much stuff here. Uh, I think I should read Lady Lazarus. Some of the poems in her last book, Ariel, uh, are always with me. She seems to know that this is her masterpiece. She says it will make her reputation. Uh, oh, meaning leaks from the molecules. She wrote, jealousy can open the blood. It can make black roses. It's violent. We're here on a visit with a goddamn baby screaming off somewhere. There's always a bloody baby in the air. Oh, love, love, I have hung our cave with roses, with soft rugs. The last of Victoriana. The empty benches of memory look over stones. Stolen horses, fornication, circle a womb of marble. 
sulfurous adulteries grieve in a dream. Oh, sister, mother, wife, sweet, love is my life. I am never, never, never coming home. A palace of velvet with windows of mirrors, there one is safe. There are no family photographs. <laughs> Must you kill what you can? Yes, that is her, her best line, I think, uh, when she tries to define patriarchy or this man's world she's trying to live in. Uh, the whole notion that uh, the male requires an enemy that uh, death is his goal, his uh, deepest desire. She writes, There is mud on my feet, thick, red, and slipping. It is Adam's side, this earth I rise from, and I in agony. It's a description of crawling out of Adam's rib, indeed, yes. A slippery mess. Ah. Every woman adores a fascist, the boot in the face, the brute, brute heart of a brute like you. If I've killed one man, I've killed two, the vampire who said he was you and drank my blood for a year. Seven years, if you want to know, Daddy, you can lie back now. There's a stake in your fat, black heart, and the villagers never liked you. They are dancing and stamping on you. They always knew it was you. Daddy, Daddy, you bastard, I'm through. I always think it is curious that Sylvia Plath's favorite childhood poem was The Forsaken Merman by Matthew Arnold. It was also my favorite poem when I was a child. It's that... Beautiful, beautiful lyric poem about the merman who is forsaken because uh, he, yes, he is nature. He is the old world. He stays uh, down in the bottom of the ocean with the children and she goes up to be a Christian to join the, uh, the man's world, the Christian world. Yes, uh, <laughs> I think there's a lot of pagan Christian here. Now, Ted uh, Ted Hughes uh, pretended to be a pagan. He used to actually consult consult the omens. There's a wonderful piece about his uh, tearing apart a small animal to see uh, what he should do. I think that this uh, what is it? This ancient proverb I found. Yes. Uh, for Sylvia, she buried in Yorkshire under one of those stone slabs. Uh, here's a William Blake proverb, an ancient proverb. I think it's her birthright. 
Remove away that blackening church. Remove away that marriage hearse. Remove away that place of blood. You'll quite remove the ancient curse. I think of Sylvia Plath as a crone. She's uh, living at a place called Mutzpilheim. That is a land, basically hell. It's a place where there's a mutzpil or mother's curse. Uh, she represents the ancient goddess of destruction. She's a nemesis figure. Yes. <laughs> she is a miasma. Yes, that's also a mother's curse. The crimes committed against woman, against nature, against the natural order of things. Uh, the female worldview dictates that we are not in control. Not in control of anything, especially nature. Uh, nature, of course, knows what it's doing. The earth is for us to learn from, not for us to master. The earth cannot be had. That is a pornographic mindset. Uh, patriarchal worldview dictates that we subdue the earth, strip mine the land, rape the forests. I have to stop because I've come up with my first published poem. It's a he and a she. He says... I am master of the universe. She says, I am the universe. Maybe more next time on Sylvia Plath. Uh, she seems to be haunting me. This has been Jennifer Stone. I'll be back on the air next week at the same time. Till then, go easy.